This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life can often get very busy, and taking care of your own mental health might end up falling to the bottom of our priorities. I'm a firm believer that dedicating time to our own well-being is so important, and from personal experience, I get enormous benefits from therapy in dedicating a little bit of time each week to processing the thoughts and feelings I've been having that I don't necessarily have room for on a day-to-day basis. I'm quite new to therapy myself, but I've already found it an enormously helpful way to lay out my worries and stresses with someone who's able to offer tools to help resolve those worries and stresses. If you are considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill in a short questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and very convenient and flexible to your schedule. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com smts today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash S-M-T-S. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 7, Forest Giants. We'll be invited this evening to encounter the Sequoia Gigantia with its harmonious proportions and awe-inspiring presence. This noble giant beckons us to explore the profound beauty of nature's enduring legacy. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Big Trees Between the heavy pine and the silver fir zones towers the big tree, Sequoia Gigantia, the king of all the conifers in the world, the noblest of the noble race. Groves nearest Yosemite Valley are about 20 miles to the westward and southward and are called the Tulum, Merced, and Mariposa Groves. It extends a widely interrupted belt from a very small grove on the middle fork of the American River to the head of Deer Creek, a distance of about 260 miles, its northern limit being near the 39th parallel, the southern a little below the 36th. 
The elevation of the belt above the sea varies from about 5,000 to 8,000 feet. From the American River to the King's River, the species occurs only in small, isolated groups, so sparsely distributed along the belt that three of the gaps in it are from 40 to 60 miles wide. But from King's River southward, the sequoia is not restricted to mere groves, but extends across the wide, rugged basins of the Kauai and the Tool Rivers in noble forests, a distance of nearly 70 miles. The continuity of this part of the belt being broken only by the main canyons. The Fresno, the largest of the northern groves, has an area of three or four square miles, a short distance to the southward of the famous Mariposa Grove. Along the south rim of the canyon of the north fork of the King's River, there is a majestic sequoia forest about six miles long by two wide. This is the northernmost group that may fairly be called a forest. Descending the divide between the Kings and the Kawaiya rivers, you come to the grand forests that form the main continuous portion of the belt. Southward, the giants become more and more irrepressibly exuberant heaving their massive crowns into the sky from every ridge and slope, waving onward in graceful compliance with the complicated topography of the region. The finest of the Kauai section of the belt is on the broad ridge between Marble Creek and the Middle Fork and is called the Giant Forest. It extends from the granite headlands overlooking the hot San Joaquin Plains to within a few miles of the cool glacial fountain of the summit peaks. The extreme upper limit of the belt is reached between the middle and south forks of the Kauai at a height of 8,400 feet, but the finest block of big tree forests in the entire belt is on the north fork of the Chul River and is included in the Sequoia National Park. In the northern groves, there are comparatively few young trees or saplings. But here, for every old storm-beaten giant, there are many in their prime, and for each of these, a crowd of hopeful young trees and saplings, growing vigorously on moraines, rocky edges, along watercourses and meadows. But though the area occupied by the big tree increases so greatly from north to south, there is no marked increase in the size of the trees. The height of 275 feet or thereabouts, and a diameter of about 20 feet, 4 feet from the ground, is, perhaps, about the average size of what may be called full-grown trees, where they are favorably located. The specimens 25 feet in diameter 
are not very rare, and a few are nearly 300 feet high. In the Calaveras Grove, there are four trees over 300 feet in height, the tallest of which, as measured by the Geological Survey, is 325 feet. The very largest that I have yet met in the course of my explorations is a majestic old fire-scarred monument in the King's River Forest. It is 35 feet and 8 inches in diameter inside the bark, 4 feet above the ground. It is burned half through and I spent a day in clearing away the charred surface with a sharp axe and counting the annual wood rings with the aid of my pocket lens. I succeeded in laying a bare section all the way from the outside to the heart and counted the little over 4,000 rings, showing that this tree was in its prime, about 27 feet in diameter, at the beginning of the Christian era. No other tree in the world, as far as I know, has looked down on so many centuries as the sequoia, or opened so many impressive and suggestive views into history. Under the most favourable conditions, these giants probably live 5,000 years or more, though few of even the larger trees are half as old. The age of one that was felled in the Calaveras Grove, for the sake of having its stump for a dancing floor, was about 1,300 years, and its diameter measured across the stump 24 feet inside the bark. Another that was felled in the King's River Forest was about the same size, but nearly a thousand years older, 2,200 years, though not a very old-looking tree. So harmonious and finely balanced are even the mightiest of these monarchs in all their proportions that there is never anything overgrown or monstrous about them. Seeing them for the first time, you are more impressed with their beauty than their size, their grandeur being in great part invisible, but sooner or later it becomes manifest to the loving eye, stealing slowly on the senses, like the grandeur of the Niagara or of the Yosemite domes. When you approach them and walk around them, you begin to wonder at their colossal size and try to measure them. They bulge considerably at the base, but not more than is required for beauty and safety, and the only reason that this bulging seems in some cases excessive is that only a comparatively small section is seen in near views. One that I measured in the King's River Forest was 25 feet in diameter at the ground and 10 feet in diameter, 220 feet above the ground, showing the finest of the taper of the trunk as a whole. No description can give anything like an adequate idea of their singular majesty, 
much less of their beauty. Except the sugar pine, most of their neighbors with pointed tops seem ever trying to go higher, while the big tree, soaring above them all, seems satisfied. Its grand domed head seems to be poised about as lightly as a cloud, giving no impression of seeking to rise higher. Only when it is young does it show like other conifers a heavenward yearning, sharply aspiring with a long, quick-growing top. Indeed, the whole tree for the first century or two, or until it is a hundred or one hundred and fifty feet high, is arrowhead in form, and compared with the solemn rigidity of age, seems as sensitive to the wind as a squirrel's tail. As it grows older, the lower branches are gradually dropped, and the upper ones thinned out until comparatively few are left. These, however, are developed to a great size, divide again and again, and terminate in bossy, rounded masses of leafy branchlets, while the head becomes dome-shaped and is the first to feel the touch of the rosy beams of the morning, the last to bid the sun good night. Perfect specimens, unhurt by running fires or lightning, are singularly regular and symmetrical in general form, though not in the least conventionalized, for they show extraordinary variety in the unity and harmony of their general outline. The immensely strong, stately shafts are free of limbs for 150 feet or so. The large limbs reach out with equal boldness at every direction, showing no weather side, and no other tree has foliage so densely massed, so finely molded in outline and so perfectly subordinate to an ideal type. A particularly knotty, angular, ungovernable-looking branch, from five to seven or eight feet in diameter, and perhaps a thousand years old, may occasionally be pushing out from the trunk, as if determined to break across the bounds of the regular curve, but like all others, it dissolves in bosses of branchlets and sprays as soon as the general outline is approached. Except in picturesque old age, after being struck by lightning or broken by thousands of snowstorms, the regularity of forms is one of their most distinguishing characteristics. Another is the simple beauty of the trunk and its great thickness as compared with its height and the width of the branches, which make them look more like finely moulded and sculpted architectural columns than the stems of trees, while the great limbs look like rafters supporting the magnificent dome head. But though so consummately beautiful, the big tree always seems unfamiliar with peculiar physiognomy, awfully solemn and earnest, 
Yet, with all its strangeness, it impresses us as being more at home than any of its neighbors, holding the best right to the ground as the oldest, strongest inhabitant. One soon becomes acquainted with new species of pine and fir and spruce, as with friendly people, shaking their outstretched branches like shaking hands and fondling their little ones, while the venerable aboriginal Sokoa, ancient of other days, keeps you at a distance, looking as strange in aspect and behavior among its neighbor trees as would the mastodon among the homely bears and deers. Only the Sierra Juniper is at all like it, standing rigid and unconquerable on glacier pavements for thousands of years, grim and silent, with an air of antiquity about as pronounced as that of the sequoia. The bark of the largest tree is from one to two feet thick, rich, cinnamon brown, purplish on young trees, forming magnificent masses of color with the underbrush. Towards the end of the winter, the trees are in bloom, while the snow is still eight or ten feet deep. The female flowers are about three-eighths of an inch long, pale green, and grow in countless thousands on the ends of sprays. The male are still more abundant, pale yellow, a fourth of an inch long, and when the pollen is ripe, they color the whole tree and dust the air and the ground. The cones are bright grass green in color, about two and a half inches long, one and a half wide, made up of thirty or forty strong, closely packed rhombodial scales, with four to eight seeds at the base of each. The seeds are wonderfully small and light, being only from an eighth to a fourth of an inch long and wide, including a filmy surrounding wing, which causes them to glint and waver in falling, and enables the wind to carry them considerable distances. Unless harvested by squirrels, the cones discharge their seeds and remain on the trees for many years. In fruitful seasons, the trees are fairly laden. On two small branches, one and a half and two inches in diameter, I counted 480 cones. No other California conifer produces nearly so many seeds, except, perhaps, the other sequoia, the redwood of the coast mountains. Millions are ripened annually by a single tree, and in a fruitful year, the product of one of the northern groves would be enough to plant all the mountain ranges in the world. As soon as any accident happens to the crown, such as being smashed off by lightning, the branches beneath the wound, no matter how situated, seem to be excited 
like a colony of bees that have lost their queen and become anxious to repair the damage. Limbs that have grown outward for centuries at right angles to the trunk begin to turn upwards to assist in making a new crown, each speedily assuming the special form of true summits. Even in the case of mere stumps, burned half through, some mere ornamental tuft will try to go aloft and do its best as a leader in forming a new head. Groups of two or three are often found standing close together, the seeds from which they sprang having probably grown on ground cleared for their reception by the fall of a large tree of a former generation. They are called loving couples, three graces, etc. When these trees are young, they are seen to stand twenty or thirty feet apart. By the time they have fully grown, their trunks will touch and crowd against each other, and in some cases, even appear as one. It is generally believed that the Sokoa was once far more widely distributed over the Sierra, but after long and careful study, I have come to the conclusion that it never was, at least since the close of the glacial period, because a diligent search along the margins of the groves and in the gaps between fails to reveal a single trace of its previous existence beyond its present bounds. Notwithstanding, I feel confident that if every sequoia in the range were to die today, numerous monuments of their existence would remain of so imperishable a nature as to be available to the student more than 10,000 years hence. In the first place, no species of coniferous tree in the range keeps its members so well together as the sequoia. A mile is, perhaps, the greatest distance of any straggler from the main body and all of those stragglers that have come under my observation are young, instead of old monumental trees, relics of a more extended growth. Again, the great trunks of the sequoia last for centuries after they fall. I have a specimen block of sequoia wood cut from a fallen tree which is hardly distinguishable from a similar section cut from a living tree, although the one cut from the fallen trunk has certainly lain on the damp forest floor for more than 380 years, probably thrice as long. The time measure in the case is simply this. When the ponderous trunk to which the old vestiges belonged fell, it sunk itself into the ground, thus making a long, straight ditch, and in the middle of this ditch, a silver fir four feet in diameter and 380 years old was growing, as I determined by cutting it half through and counting the rings, thus demonstrating that the remnant of the trunk that made the ditch has lain on the ground more than 380 years. For it is evident that, 
to find the whole time, we must add to the 380 years the time that the vanished portion of the trunk lay in the ditch before being burned out of the way, plus the time that passed before the seed from which the monumental fir sprang fell into the prepared soil and took root. Now, because sequoia trunks are never wholly consumed in one forest fire, and those fires recur only at considerable intervals, and because sequoia ditches, after being cleared, are often left unplanted for centuries, it becomes evident that the trunk remnant in question may probably have lain a thousand years or more, and this instance is by no means a late one. Again, admitting that upon those areas supposed to have been once covered with sequoia forests, every tree may have fallen, and every trunk may have been burned or buried, leaving not a remnant. Many of the ditches made by the fall of the ponderous trunks and the bowls made by their upturning roots would remain patent for thousands of years after the last vestige of the trunks that made them had vanished. Much of this ditch writing would no doubt be quickly affected by the flood action of overflowing streams and rain washing, but no inconsiderable portion would remain enduringly engraved on ridge tops beyond such destructive action. For, where all the conditions are favourable, it is almost imperishable. Now these historic ditches and root poles occur in all the present sequoia groves and forests, but, as far as I have observed, not the faintest vestige of one presents itself outside of them. We therefore conclude that the area covered by sequoia has not been diminished during the last eight or ten thousand years, and probably not at all in post-glacial time. Nevertheless, the question may be asked, is the species verging towards extinction? What are its relations to climate, soil, and associated trees? All the phenomena bearing on these questions also throw light, as we shall endeavour to show, upon the peculiar distribution of these species, and sustain the conclusion already arrived at as to the question of former extensions. In the northern groups, as we have seen, there are few young trees or saplings growing up around the old ones to perpetuate the race, and inasmuch as those aged sequoias, so nearly childless, are the only ones commonly known to the species, to most observers, seems doomed to speedy extinction as being nothing more than an expiring remnant vanished to the so-called struggle for life by pines and firs that have driven it into the last strongholds in moist glens where the climate is supposed to be exceptionally favourable. But the story told by the majestic continuous forests of the south creates a very different impression. 
No tree in the forest is more enduringly established in coordinates with both climate and soil. It grows heartily everywhere, on moraines, rocky ledges, along watercourses, and in the deep, moist alluvium of meadows, with, as we have seen, a multitude of seedlings and saplings crowding up around the aged, abundantly able to maintain the forest in prime vigor, so that if all the trees of any section of the main sequoia forest were ranged together according to age, a very promising curve would be presented, all the way up from last year's seedlings to giants, and with the young and middle-aged portion of the curve many times longer than the old portion. Even as far north as the Fresno, I counted 536 saplings and seedlings, growing promisingly upon a landslip not exceeding two acres in area. This soil bed was about seven years old and had been seeded almost simultaneously by pines, firs, libocedrus, and sequoia, presenting a simple and instructive illustration of the struggle for life among the rival species. And it was interesting to note that the conditions thus far affecting them have enabled the young sequoias to gain a market advantage. Towards the south, where the sequoia becomes most exuberant and numerous, the rival trees become less so, and where they mix with sequoias, they grow up beneath them like slender grasses among stalks of Indian corn. Upon a bed of sandy flood soil, I counted 94 sequoias, from 1 to 12 feet high, on a patch of ground once occupied by four large sugar pines which lay crumbling beneath them, an instance of conditions which have enabled sequoias to crowd out the pines. I also noted 86 vigorous saplings upon a piece of fresh ground, prepared for their reception by fire. Thus fire, the great destroyer of the sequoia, also furnishes the bare ground required for its growth from the seed. Fresh ground is, however, furnished in sufficient quantities for the renewal of the forests without the aid of fire, by the fall of old trees. The soil is thus upturned and mellowed, and many trees are planted for every one that falls. It is constantly asserted, in a vague way, that the Sierra was vastly wetter than now, and that the increasing drought will of itself extinguish the sequoia, leaving its ground to other trees, supposed capable of flourishing in drier climate. But that the sequoia can and does grow on as dry ground as any of its present rivals is manifest in a thousand places. Why then, it will be asked, are sequoias always found 
only in well-watered places. Simply because a growth of sequoias creates those streams. The thirsty mountaineer knows well that in every sequoia grove he will find running water, but it is a mistake to suppose that the water is the cause of the grove being there. On the contrary, the grove is the cause of the water being there. Drain off the water and the trees will remain, but cut off the trees and the streams will vanish. Never was cause more completely mistaken for effect than in the case of these related phenomena of sequoia woods and perennial streams. When attention is called to the method of sequoia stream making, it will be apprehended at once. The roots of these immense trees fill the ground, forming a thick sponge that absorbs and holds back the rain and melting snow, only allowing it to ooze and flow gently. Indeed, every fallen leaf and rootlet as well as long clasping root and prostrate trunk, may be regarded as dam hoarding the bounty of storm clouds and dispensing it as blessings all through the summer, instead of allowing it to go headlong in short-lived floods. Since then, it is a fact that thousands of sequoias are growing thriftily on what is termed dry ground and even clinging like mountain pines to rifts in granite precipices, and since it has also been shown that the extra moisture found in connection with the denser growth is an effect of their presence instead of a cause of their presence, then the notion as to the former extension of the species and its near approach to extinction, based upon its supposed dependence on greater moisture, are seen to be erroneous. The decrease in rain and snowfall since the close of the glacial period in the Sierra is much less than is commonly guessed. The highest post-glacial watermarks are well preserved in all the upper river channels, and they are not greatly higher than the spring flood marks of the present, showing conclusively that no extraordinary decrease has taken place in the volume of the upper tributaries of the post-glacial Sierra streams since they came into existence. But, in the meantime, eliminating all this complicated question of climatic change, the plain fact remains that the present rain and snowfall is abundantly sufficient for the luxuriant growth of sequoia forests. Indeed, all my observations tend to show that in a prolonged drought, the sugar pines and firs would perish before the sequoia, not alone because of the greater longevity of individual trees, but because the specimen can endure more drought and make the most of whatever moisture falls. Again, if the restriction and irregular distribution of the species be interpreted as a result of the desiccation of the range, then instead of increasing as it does in individuals towards the south 
where the rainfall is less, it should diminish. If, then, the peculiar distribution of sequoia has not been governed by superior conditions of soil as to the fertility or moisture, by what has it been governed? In the course of my studies, I observed that the northern groves, the only ones I was at first acquainted with, were located on just those portions of the general forest soil belt that were first laid bare towards the close of the glacial period, when the ice sheet began to break up into individual glaciers. And while searching the wide basin of the San Joaquin, and trying to account for the absence of sequoia where every condition seemed favourable for its growth, it occurred to me that this remarkable gap in the sequoia belt, 50 miles wide, is located exactly in the basin of the vast, ancient Mer de Glace of the San Joaquin and Kings River basins, which poured its frozen floods to the plain through this gap as its channel. I then perceived that the next great gap in the belt to the northward, 40 miles wide, extending between the Calavaris and the Tulum groves, occurs in the basin of the great ancient Mer de Glace of the Tulum and Stanislaus basins, and that the smaller gap between the Merced and the Mariposa groves occurs in the basin of the smaller glacier of the Merced. The wider the ancient glacier, the wider the corresponding gap in the sequoia belt. Finally, pursuing my investigations across the basins of the Kawaya and the Tule, I discovered that the sequoia belt attained its greatest development just where, owing to the topographical peculiarities of the region, the ground had been protected from the main ice rivers that continued to pour past from the summit fountains long after the small local glaciers had been melted. Taking now a general view of the belt, beginning at the south, we see that the majestic ancient glaciers were shed off right and left down the valleys of the Kern and Kings River by the lofty protective spurs outspread embracingly above the warm sequoia-filled basins of the Kawaya and Tule. Then, next northward, occurs the wide sequoia-less channel or basin of the ancient San Jacquin and Sings River, Mer de Glace. Then the warm, protected spots of the Fresno and Mariposa groves then the sequoia-less channel of the ancient Merced Glacier. Next, the warm, sheltered ground of the Merced and the Tulum Groves. Then, the sequoia-less channel of the grand ancient Mer de Glace of the Tulum and Stanislaus. Then, the warm old ground of the Calavaras and the Stanislaus Groves. It appears, therefore, that just where at a certain period in history of the Sierra, the glaciers were not. There the sequoia is, and just where the glaciers were, there the sequoia is not. 
but although all the observed phenomena bearing on the post-glacial history of this colossal tree point to the conclusion that it never was more widely distributed on the Sierra since the close of the glacial epoch, that its present forests are scarcely past prime, if, indeed, they have reached prime, that the post-glacial day of the species is probably not half done. Yet, when from a wider outlook the vast antiquity of the genus is considered, and its ancient richness in species and individuals, comparing our Sierra Giant and Sequoia Sempervirens of the Coast Range, the only other living species of Sequoia, with the twelve fossil species already discovered and described by Hare and Lescarou, some of which flourished over vast areas in Arctic regions and in Europe and our own territories during territory and crustaceous times, then indeed it becomes plain that our two surviving species, restricted to narrow belts within the limits of California, are mere remnants of the genus, both as to species and individuals, and that they may be verging to extinction. But the verge of a period beginning in crustaceous times may have a breadth of tens of thousands of years, not to mention the possible existence of conditions calculated to multiply and re-extend both species and individuals. There is no absolute limit to the existence of any tree. Death is due to accidents, not, as that of animals, to the wearing out of organs. Only the leaves die of old age, their fall is foretold in their structure, but the leaves are renewed every year, and so also are the essential organs wood, roots, bark, buds. Most of the Sierra trees die of disease, insects, fungi, etc., but nothing hurts the big tree. I never saw one that was sick or showed the slightest sign of decay. Barring accidents, it seems to be immortal. It is a curious fact that all the very old sequoias had lost their heads by lightning strokes. All things come to him who waits, but of all living things, sequoia is perhaps the only one able to wait long enough to make sure of being struck by lightning. (laughs) 